talent is distributed equally around the world, but what is not is opportunity. And so by the end of the century, 40% of the world's population will be in Africa. And this is a store of immense potential talent that if we can give an opportunity, it can really become an engine of growth and prosperity for the whole world. Hi, I'm Peter Drobak, and this is Reimagine, a new podcast from the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Oxford University's Said Business School. In each episode, we dive deep into one wicked problem, from pandemics to climate change to homelessness. How did we get here? Why are we stuck? Then we'll meet social entrepreneurs who see things differently. These are the visionaries who are in the business of building better futures. While most of us see only symptoms, social entrepreneurs look at the whole system. And by reframing a problem, we can begin to rethink what's possible. Unlocking this process of discovery is what Reimagine is all about. As I record this, the University of Oxford, like many universities around the world, has closed its physical doors and temporarily moved online due to COVID-19. That creates all kinds of challenges. But it's also a chance for us to re-examine the very idea of a university in the 21st century. And that's our focus in this episode. Higher education has been broken for a long time. Costs are out of control, saddling many students and families with lifetimes of debt. And in many parts of the world, a university education is a privilege most could only dream of. Is this a moment to reimagine higher education? What if I told you that the future of higher ed is being built right now? Not in Oxford, not in Cambridge, but in Rwanda. It's a country very close to my heart. Known as the land of a thousand hills, Rwanda is a little country in East Africa and the place I called home for more than a decade. Rwanda taught me that the next great idea can come from anyone, anywhere. Now, most people know just one thing about Rwanda, the 1994 genocide which tragically took a million lives in just 100 days. What's less well known is the remarkable story of how Rwanda went on to rebuild itself. As the world looked away in shame and indifference, the people of Rwanda refused to accept their fate and insisted on imagining a different future. Then they got to work building it. Rwanda became a nation of social entrepreneurs. Since 1994, life expectancy has more than doubled. The economy has trebled, and millions of people have pulled themselves up from poverty. When you walk the streets of Rwanda's capital, Kigali, these days, there's a sense of energy, optimism, and a future focus you don't find many places. It may surprise you, but Rwanda today is a hotbed of innovation. And as a still poor country with few natural resources, Rwanda is betting on human capital to transform its economy and society. That's why education is so important. And that's why a new vanguard of unconventional startup universities is flourishing there. One of them is University of Global Health Equity, which I helped to start with my friends at Partners in Health. And the most ambitious, 
perhaps the boldest experiment in higher education on the planet is the African Leadership University, or ALU. We'll talk to ALU's founder, Fred Swanaker, in a bit. But first, let's zoom out. Joining me to help us understand global trends in higher education is Dr. David Johnson, an educational psychologist who heads up the Center for Comparative and International Education here at the University of Oxford. David's scholarship literally spans the globe, and I think you'll really enjoy his perspective. But best of all, he sounds like a British James Earl Jones. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Peter. Thanks for inviting me. Great to have you here. David, I think it's fair to say that a university education may be more important for more young people than ever before. Let's start at a macro level. Tell us about how higher education is evolving in the early 21st century. The way to look at higher education, particularly across the globe, is to see it as dichotomous. There are a number of challenges that face us, and I think that the challenges between expansion and excellence between growth and participation, and between horizon gazing and the instrumental functions of higher education. Educational attainment, which is the the length of time that people remain in education and complete it at its highest levels, uh, is without question strongly correlated with economic growth and prosperity. So, of course, it's incredibly important that the sector is able to expand But in poorer, more populated regions of the world, this often comes with costs. And uptake of higher education favours those living in urban areas and those from homes in which they uh, come from. At least one parent has been educated. Mm. So you you pointed out that uh, attainment, that higher education attainment is so critical to uh, being able to support growth of GDP. So particularly in poor countries, that's uh, tremendously important. And, you know, according to the World Bank in sub-Saharan Africa, university level enrollment is about 9% of the population. So you can see how increasing that access would be a high priority. Now, David, I understand that you actually did your university education in South Africa at Witwatersrand and uh, spent some of that time in, uh, in jail because of your role as an activist during that time. Would you mind just speaking about that sort of period in your experience a bit? No, no, that's uh, quite all right. I, uh, I have tried to keep that incredibly quiet over my steady rise up the uh, bureaucracy of the University of Oxford. But uh, no, no, I'm very happy to. I mean, I, of course... At the time, I uh, became an undergraduate at the University of the uh, Woodwatersrand was obviously at the height of the South African apartheid system, where universities were racially set apart. And the community to which I was classified to belong was a a mixed race or coloured community uh, in a time when there was actually a um, rule that uh, so-called white universities, as Witz was, uh, was only to accept 10% of its entire student population uh, as black students who would have a permit from Pretoria. Um, anyway, I, I was uh, given the permit, but from the moment I arrived, arrived at uh, Witz, I was elected to the chairmanship of the Black Student Society and uh, gave the South African state, as it were, no peace during all my time there, they, of course, uh, retaliated detentions in solitary confinement. 
the usual bits of torture that uh, went with that and eventually uh, banned me for uh, five years. Well, this was after a trial in which I was um, accused and found guilty of the infamous Riotous Assembly Act, which meant addressing large uh, gatherings uh, in public. Eventually, I was driven out of the country, so um, had a uh, scholarship from the UN, which uh, allowed me to pursue education in the UK, and the, the rest is um, history, as they say. It's an amazing story. That should be front and center in your bio, an anti-apartheid freedom fighter. What's interesting to me is that it's a reminder of the fact that an issue that some of us may be fighting for, in this case, we'll talk a lot about increasing access to higher education, is uh, oftentimes entwined within larger and broader struggles. And I wonder, how much do you think that legacies of apartheid in Southern Africa, colonialism and the rest of the continent are still in play today when we look at some of the challenges facing higher education on the continent? You know, people often ask whether higher education in Africa is a luxury that the continent can't afford. My response to that has always been that I think the particular challenges to higher education and to expansion and to the funding of higher education uh, suffered a massive blow in the late 1970s. Uh, So the rate of return formula that was employed by the World Bank and the uh, IMF stunted both the growth of the technical and vocational education sectors and also that of higher education in favour of primary education where returns to investment were calculated to be highest. Today there's no question about the fact that both sectors are vital for growth and prosperity Uh, But there's a constant calculation and recalculation of how higher education might best be funded. So I think to to your question about, you know, what what can we learn from colonialism is a a hugely important question. And it it speaks also to a number of macro adversities, so economic, uh, political, uh, social and cultural, that are very difficult to disentangled. So the questions become more than just what type of higher education or who provides it and for what purpose. David, I want to talk about how the system, as it were, is preparing students for the 21st century and and its new challenges. You know, on the one hand, we say a university education is so critical now in the 21st century. And on the other, whether we're in the UK, the US, uh, in many parts of Africa, we hear about graduating students who are burdened with debt and unable to find jobs. Is there a mismatch between what we're teaching and the skills that are needed today in the workplace or is something else at work here? I don't think we can avoid what is a glaring problem. Uh, In many countries, the quality of the skills that graduates develop during their studies is found to be wanting. Uh, In Nigeria, for example, just recently, a survey found that only 25% of employers rated the graduates of polytechnics, colleges and uh, of education and universities as good to, to very good. Uh, But these are also uncertain times that demand strong leadership in international political relations, strong economic and environmental leadership, strong ethical leadership. Uh, What threats and what problems are on the horizon, both known and unknown, and how the mission of the university is geared towards producing the instruments, the goods and services required immediately, and imagining those that we haven't yet confronted 
I think is key to the challenges of our time. I think that's a perfect place to introduce our next guest. Thank you, David. Stay with us and we'll come back together a bit later in the show. Now we're going to hear from someone who is trying to transform higher education. This is not a timid vision. His goal is to develop 3 million ethical and entrepreneurial leaders for Africa and the world by 2035. Fred Swanaker is the founder and CEO of the African Leadership Group, which includes African Leadership University and its online platform, ALX. A serial entrepreneur, Fred was born in Ghana, but has lived and worked in over 10 African countries. He's been recognized as one of the leading social entrepreneurs in the world. Fred sees Africa's looming population boom as an opportunity. I began by asking him, why? Well, in Africa, we have a very large pool of untapped human potential. Talent is distributed equally around the world. But what is not is opportunity. And so if we can give an opportunity, it can really become an engine of growth and prosperity for the whole world. By the end of the century, 40% of the world's population will be in Africa. And the continent has many challenges. But one of the things that I believe is that constraints drive innovation. And therefore, because we have so many constraints in Africa, a lot of the innovations that we're looking for right now to address our challenges in healthcare and climate change and youth unemployment will actually be found in Africa because we, we have no choice but to innovate and to reimagine everything. Our goal as the African Leadership Group is to develop 3 million high-caliber African leaders in the next 15 years. You know, I believe that if we can do something like that, then what we'll do is unleash a whole new generation of problem solvers and innovators and entrepreneurs who can not only solve Africa's problems, but the world's problems. Let's dig into this a little bit further. What's What's really impressed me with what's happening at African Leadership University is that you're not trying, or at least it seems like you're not trying to replicate the elite universities of the of the West or of the world, um, that you're really trying to approach things differently. Um, and starting some from scratch affords really special opportunities. So talk about what's new or what's different or really how you're sort of uh, approaching uh, education to meet some of these goals. So if you look at the elite universities, you know, Oxford is about a thousand years old. Harvard, Yale, is several hundred years old. In Africa, we have less than 15 years, you know, 6,000 days from now before we have the largest workforce in the world. So we don't have time. We can't slowly and methodically plod along for a thousand years. So we need to do it very quickly. The second thing is we don't have a lot of money. You know, we're a poor continent, and so we can't afford to spend billions of dollars building a university like Oxford or Cambridge. We need to do it at a very low cost. And the third thing we don't have is we don't have a lot of professors with PhDs. So that forced us to rethink everything. And uh, in doing so, um, we questioned everything. So one of the things we realized is that traditionally, universities have been built around scarce resources. There's a mindset of scarcity. It's elite. There's only a few slots available to go to Harvard or Oxford. And thousands of people apply, and they only select a few of them. And there's only a few professors who work there. And, you know, it's all based on these limited uh, resources. So we realized that we need to develop a system that is built around abundance. And, and the abundant resource that we have in Africa are millions and hundreds of millions of young people. And so we asked ourselves the question, what if you could build a university around the students and not the professors? 
because now you have then a system that's built around an abundant resource, not a scarce resource, right? And so this has been made possible because of technology. Today, a child in rural Africa has access on their mobile phone to more information than someone who was doing a PhD at Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard 30 years ago, right? So that is a tremendous opportunity that allows us to then rethink how learning happens and to allow the student to really learn by themselves using this abundant information that's out there. And then it also allows, and then to, they can learn from each other. So we, can, we leverage a lot of peer-to-peer learning because if you have to explain something to someone else, it makes you learn a lot better yourself. So we leverage the fact of the power of the peers. And then we can still have you know, intervention by facilitators and so forth. But now that facilitator doesn't have to be a professor with a PhD. It can be a retired executive, it can be a mid-career professional, it can be a, retired, a recent college graduate. But what you're doing is you're leveraging those few human resources that you have for many, many more students. And you're shifting the responsibility for learning from the professor to the student. This is the way that we've always learned as human beings. There's no curriculum that teaches you as a child of six months old how to walk. Or there's no curriculum that teaches you language. You learn it by yourself. But then when we go to school, we start to take away that agency from that learner. And then we make them more and more helpless. And by the time you now get to university, you're so dependent on that professor or the teacher for your learning. So what we're trying to do is go back to that innate human ability to learn. We're finding you know, massive levels of engagement from the students because now they're empowered to learn. They're learning from their peers and it's really exciting. So that's the one thing that we're doing differently. The second thing we're doing differently is we are really trying to unlock the full potential of a human being. So there's a lot of research that shows that to effectively acquire any skill, only 10% of it can be learned in the classroom. 20% of it is learned from what they call developmental relationships with your peers and your mentors and through projects and so forth. And 70% is learned by doing, right? We learn from experience. Um, and, and yet today, most universities focus only on that 10%, that classroom learning. And so we're unlocking only 10% of human potential. And so what we're trying to do is unlock that 100%. So we, we in addition to what they're learning online and, and the peers and with limited facilitation, they're doing a lot of real project work, right? So we get them into the field, they work for organizations, they solve problems, and they're getting their hands dirty. Every year, our students have to spend eight months learning, four months in an internship. The third thing and my final thing I'll talk about is really we're changing the purpose of university education. We believe that in today's world where what we learn quickly becomes outdated. Um, and in fact, it's always been that way. Even if I, if I, uh, whenever I go around the world and I ask people to, you know, in the audience to tell me if they're in a job that is remotely related to what they studied in college, I find that the answer is never more than five or 10%. Yet today, when we go to a university, the university gives us a menu of academic disciplines that, that has been created by that university. Sometimes it's a 50-year-old menu, you know, Bachelor of Arts in History, Bachelor of Science in Chemistry, and so forth. And um, we believe that what matters is learning how to learn rather than learning facts and figures and learning how to solve problems. Because with that mindset and those, those abilities, then you'll be able to relearn new skills as the world changes as artificial intelligence takes over your job and as your interests change, you're able to then continuously reskill yourself and be, remain relevant as the world changes. So one of the things we do practically is, um, you know, most universities have a, a, a list of majors that you have to choose. We, we rather are giving our students a menu of challenges that are facing the world. So we've got a list of the seven grand challenges facing Africa and the seven great opportunities. So these are big challenges like healthcare, climate change, governance, youth unemployment, and so forth. 
And then we have great opportunities where it's the low-hanging fruit where Africa has been blessed, but we haven't captured them yet. Things like agriculture, the empowerment of women, the arts and design and, and uh, wildlife conservation and so forth. And then we ask our students not to choose a major, but we ask them to declare a mission. Pick one of these challenges and then curate your own learning experiences around this challenge. So you decide what courses you want to take online, what projects you want to do, what experts you want to interview, what books you want to read. So it's purpose-based learning where you're really trying to solve a problem. And, uh, and then at the end of it, you, you graduate with a thesis that you've published around the problem you, you've been researching. You have a portfolio showing what you've actually done. You've built an incredible network because you've been you know, engaging with so many people around the world on this issue. And you've got skills that make you highly employable or allow you to create your own job as an entrepreneur. So that's, these are just some of the different ways in which we're reimagining higher education and that we think um, is actually creating a new model, not just for Africa, but for the whole world. If you had showed up to a big existing university and proposed something like this, do you think you'd be able to do anything like it? Absolutely not. Education, prestigious education especially, has been prestigious because of tradition. This is the way we've always done it for the last 500 years, and that's what people are buying. So it's very, very hard to then go against that tradition. It's really, really hard for an existing university, especially one that has a really great brand, to risk that brand in trying something new. But in our case, we, have, we, we don't have anything to lose. We have a clean slate. And so that allows us to really take on uh, and be a bit more courageous in, in really thinking about what the world needs for the future, not necessarily what was possibly relevant in the past. I think this is such an important point. There's a paradox in higher education uh, in that universities are really good at fostering innovation within laboratories, for example, but almost antithetical to innovation themselves. And having worked in some of the the big old elite universities uh, and then in some startup universities, it's absolutely, um, absolutely resonates with me. Before we started University of Global Health Equity, we talked to um, the leadership of one of those big old universities about those ideas. And there was a lot of sympathy for it and excitement about the idea, but we just couldn't find a way to make Make it work. It was too different. It was too radical. There were too many changes. And ultimately, we realized we had to go out on our own in, in exactly the same way. And, and that's why, you know, I firmly believe that the future of higher ed is being built in institutions like, like ALU and like Khan Academy. And, and this is going to be so important. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how some of the stuff that you're doing filters its way back into more traditional universities over time. Fred, let's rewind a little bit and talk about how you got here. Uh, you grew up in Ghana. You mentioned uh, that some of your post-secondary education was in the U.S., and you've started a number of uh, number of organizations over the years, all focused on education and leadership development. Just take us a little bit through your own journey and, and sorry, how you came to this idea. Certainly. Uh, well, I was born in Ghana. Um, by the age of four, um, political instability forced us to leave, and we went to Gambia for a few years, and then to Botswana for a few years, and then to Zimbabwe for a few years. And so by the time I went to college in the U.S., I had really uh, developed an identity, not just as a Ghanaian, but as an African. And the thing that kept coming back to me whenever I lived and worked in Africa was that we have a lot of opportunity, but this opportunity was being hindered by the, the lack of good leadership on the continent. And uh, the other aspect of my background is that my family has been involved in studying education institutions for a couple of generations. My grandmother started a school in Ghana. My mother started a school in Botswana. Uh, my dad had passed away and um, several teachers and several, several parents in the town that we lived in, but when I approached her and asked her to start a school, because they said, you know, you've got a good track record as a teacher. Your kids always do well. Can you start a school for us? And she says, well, I can't really start a school. My husband's just passed away. I've got four kids to look after. 
um, but they kept insisting. So she started a small study group with about five kids and and uh, one teacher in a church building. And uh, it grew to about 25 kids. So she made me the headmaster of the school at the age of 18. And uh, I managed the school for a year. I taught some classes, you know, uh, managed the other teachers and dealt with parents and so forth. And what that did was it really showed me the impact that education could have on young people. And uh, it also was my first experience as an educational entrepreneur. Um, and so move fast forward to about seven years later when I was at Stanford Business School after having worked at McKinsey and and uh, done a stint in, as an entrepreneur with a biotech company. I was just reflecting on all these experiences of living and working in different parts of Africa and this question of leadership and how the continent could get better leaders. Um, you know, today we have accidental leaders, people who just go through and society and then they, and they find themselves in very significant leadership roles and they haven't been prepared for that. And I thought, you know, how do societies get the, the types of human capital that they need? You know, if they want doctors, they build a medical school. If they want lawyers, they create a a law school. So if you want leaders, let's create a leadership school. <laughs> and over the last several years, as you've begun this uh, really ambitious experiment with African Leadership University, you built two campuses uh, thus far with the with the plan, I understand it, to build several more over time and also to uh, to move some of this education online. What have been some of the challenges you faced in the, in the first several years? Uh, number one has been uh, regulation. You know, most university systems assess quality based on inputs. So when you go through quality assurance, typically they'll look at, you know, how many professors do you have? How many textbooks do you have in your library? How many computers in your computer lab and so forth? So it's very input-based. And then they check the box and they say, okay, yes, you're ready to be a university. But they don't really track outputs. How well did your graduates do in, in securing employment? How many innovations did your graduates come up with? How many lives have they changed in society? You know, we've been much more focused on that impact side of things. And, and, um, and so that's been a challenge in terms of trying to get regulators to, to buy into our vision, uh, which is why we had to go to the more innovative countries like Mauritius and Rwanda to get started. Um, another challenge has been funding. It's obviously an ambitious project. It's, gonna, it's, it's cost us a lot of money. I personally spend about 50 to 60% of my time on the road raising money. Another challenge has been, uh, and probably one of the, the most important challenges, has been just the mindset of our own um, team. We have a lot of evidence showing that our model works, you know, seeing what our graduates are doing, they're competing with graduates from, you know, Stanford and Harvard and Yale, and they're, they're getting access to the same jobs. <laughs> they're being hired by the same companies, but what we're doing is unconventional and requires us to challenge a lot of status quo. People within the team will start to doubt whether what we're doing is, is the correct thing. And, uh, and we want to revert to the, the normal status safe pathway, especially when an outsider comes and questions what we're doing. One of the biggest challenges has been getting the team to just believe. <laughs> and so we've had to be, become much, much clearer about what we stand for and to recruit people, not just based on the skills that they have, but also based on the beliefs and values that they have. I want to ask two questions Related questions about money. Uh, you talked a lot about radically reducing costs, but how does a student go about um, starting her university education with ALU if she and her parents can't afford it? Hmm. So um, we've been approaching it from two ways. One is by reducing the cost of the education itself. So the first campus we opened in Mauritius, it costs $15,000 to go there per year. And that's just out of reach of most families in Africa. Then we innovated and we opened a campus in Rwanda where we, we brought the cost down to $4,000. Uh, 
And then we innovated further and we created another model called ALX where we brought the cost down um, to $2,000. So we've gone from $15,000 to $2,000 a year. And so that's made it a lot more affordable and accessible. But even that $2,000, many families in Africa can't afford it. So the second approach we're using is where we're, we're thinking about different ways of payment. Most you know, universities and, and other academic institutions charge fees upfront. And that's at a time when families and students themselves don't have much income. So what we are saying is, instead of having them pay for it upfront when they don't have any money, have them pay for it afterwards. We have an income share agreement where the students are signing up and saying, okay, they don't pay anything upfront, but they give us, say, 10% of their income for five to 10 years after they graduate. Mm-hmm. And so if they graduate and they're earning only $1,000 a month, then they're giving us $100. If they're making five, $300 a month, they're only giving us $30. Right? So everyone pays in proportion to what they can afford to pay. Um, and if you're unemployed, then you don't pay anything. So it's completely affordable. Um, the other model we're testing is we're building out um, a talent agency. We've started something called The Room. In, in Hollywood, you might have agents that represent the celebrities and they help them get their acting gig and their book deal and they get them onto the Trevor Noah show. No one has ever done that for professional talent. So we've set up a similar platform where all of the graduates from institutions get access to this platform and they get a, a dedicated agent. We call them pathfinders who help them navigate their career and get them their first internship and their first job and then you know board appointments as they mature and so forth. So working with them for their whole lifetimes. The talent then pay a small subscription fee. So these are the kinds of things we're playing with. But at the end goal, we've now, through innovation and rethinking our financial model, we've been able to bring the cost down to zero, the upfront cost down to zero. So now you can get access to world-class education without paying anything upfront. You only pay afterwards when you actually have the means to pay. Fascinating. I love the concept of the room because the other thing that it does is helps to it helps to narrow the gap for ALU students with some of the students that might be competing with in the workplace who have access to the kind of elite networks that um, some of the more traditional universities provide. Very cool. Second money question. Most impact ventures face some version of the same tension, the tension between the, the mission and the change they're trying to create in the world and financial performance. You made a decision early on. This is a very capital intensive project, obviously, you made the decision to build this as a company rather than as a, as a not-for-profit, as some of the other new universities in, in Africa has do, have done. Talk a little bit about that decision and whether you have faced any challenges and kind of that trade-off between achieving your mission and uh, in meeting financial targets or any tensions with, uh, with investors. So I think one of the, the mistakes a lot of social enterprises make is that they confuse their social mission with their financial model. So our social mission is not changing. We're still working on the same uh, mission of, of unlocking Africa's potential by developing its next generation of leaders. We're creating 3 million leaders who will be problem solvers and innovators and you know, political leaders and so forth who will transform the continent. But the way we're paying for it is by building a sustainable business that can fund the training of, of these leaders. In the same way, the analogy I like to use is, is with, if you think about Google. Google had was formed with a very bold mission for changing the world. They wanted to literally democratize access to information, which they felt was was being hoarded by a few wealthy people and wealthy institutions and so forth, and wealthy nations around the world. And that's Google's social mission and social impact. But their business model is advertising, right? And they, the advertising is what pays for this social impact. So if you look at it the same way, we have a very you know big and ambitious social mission, which is 
the transformation of Africa through developing these leaders. But we've had to develop a business model to allow us to pay for that. One thing, though, that I've always been careful about is getting long-term investors. So, you know, all the folks who joined us, you know, are people who are very aligned with our mission and they are, you know, high net worth individuals or foundations that are thinking of 20 or 30 years. They're not looking for quick returns. They're not looking for, you know, anyone who joins our mission. I was very clear that don't expect any financial returns in the next three to five years. This is a 10, 20, 30 year project. And um, you have to be willing to partner with us for the long term. You mentioned ALX and, and that being an important part of the way that you've brought the cost down. And I think it sounds like made this more scalable as well. I want to dig into that a little bit. And um, and before we close up, just talk about the the current moment we're in and the, and the impact of the, the coronavirus pandemic on education in, in general. So as we as we record this now, uh, we are both sheltering in place in our respective homes, as are about a third of the world's population. Uh, I don't know about ALU, but Oxford has temporarily moved all of its education online. And we don't know what the future holds, but we know that this is going to be a long struggle. Uh, and we know that however we come out of this, the future is going to look a little bit different than the past. And we're all online a lot more um, for, for meetings and for education. Talk about ALX a little bit and, and whether some of what we're going through may actually create a breakthrough opportunity for uh, for online education in the future. You know, with this coronavirus, you know, we switched completely online within a matter of days and it was very seamless because, you know, we were already doing, you know, 50 to 90% of our, of our learning online. <laughs> With ALX, given how digital we were already, uh, we were born digital, you know, we are really thinking about, can we actually use this moment to become even more accessible? If you go completely digital, you can actually be everywhere instantly, <laughs> you know, so we could be much faster, we could, we could, we could scale much faster, we can give access to people more. But I don't believe completely online education works um, because human beings are social beings. And so we need to spend time together and the best learning is social. You learn from your peers, you learn through doing and so forth. So we were designed from inception to be uh, a blended learning model. So leveraging both online and in-person experiences. You know, I mentioned the peer learning and the periodic facilitated sessions with uh, some facilitators which supplements the online learning that our students are doing. But also I mentioned how we really encourage our students to learn a lot by doing outside of the classroom. So they are leveraging the broader ecosystem. When massive open online courses started a few years ago, everyone said, oh, it's the end of the traditional university education. But we find that only 5 to 7% of people finish those courses, right? Because it's, it's lonely mm-hmm. and, and so forth. So I think even when you do, if we leverage online education, we need to do it in a way where peers get to interact with each other. In-person experiences where you all get together, you build a community and you meet your peers and you engage in social activities with them and so forth. So I see technology as augmenting the experience, making it more scalable, more accessible. I do think it's an exciting moment to really think about what is possible. Um, there's a lot that you can do online, but that notion of oh, let's just put up a bunch of courses online and and then everyone will learn. It's not the way that it's going to be. Still with me and listening to that is Dr. David Johnson. 
David, let's bring your expertise in international education to, to bear on this. At the beginning of our conversation, you laid out some of the big challenges facing higher ed, and among them was the challenge of widening access, but doing so in a way that doesn't compromise quality, and also about being able to incorporate ideas around innovation, entrepreneurship, and other horizon-gazing, as you put it, activities. What was your impression of what you're hearing about the ALU model, and does that address some of those challenges? I think so. I know Fred has made the point in his uh, discussion, for example, about practical, hands-on, laboratory-style work, which is absolutely relevant, of course, to the way in which science and technology and innovation is taught. But I think your work certainly reminds me of work that I did many, many years ago in the urban slums of uh, Faisalabad in Pakistan, where I worked with health professionals, but also engineers. What struck me uh, of that model was a complete engagement with community in the way in which they learnt about and advocated for health infrastructure, for what they needed to know, uh, what was taught. That, That certainly strikes me as a very different way of making higher education. It's not the lecture halls in the ivory towers. So remaking and reimagining uh, education for a changing world, I, I think the models that uh, Fred speaks about, your uh, models and so on, I wouldn't say um, the radical new models that would replace the traditional lecture or the traditional collaborative work in scientific uh, institutions, but it is absolutely a vital part of the palette of offerings uh, where each offering responds at different levels of intensity to different kinds of problems and challenges. Yeah, I have to say this idea of being able to major not in a discipline, but in a in a grand challenge, uh, in a mission, is a fascinating one. And it kind of made me want to go back to university myself. It's going to be just just fascinating to see sort of how this plays out um, once, once some of these students really get, get out into the world. The, the idea of income-based repayment, where a student pays nothing up front, and then once she has a job, she repays an amount related to her income. It's so simple. Uh, is it being done elsewhere to your knowledge? And is this something that you know could work to address some of these educational debt problems? It has always sounded to me like the fairest idea. But I don't think that necessarily addresses the fundamental problem of equity. Uh, So unless uh, we are at a stage where barriers are removed, the bottlenecks at uh, secondary education, the social and societal bottlenecks that gives everyone an equal shot at a place at a good university, this will remain a difficult question. And so as, as an instrument of fairness, at least, I probably think it's about right. Finally, I want to talk about the role of technology and and online education. This is the other sort of um, big issue in higher ed right now. And as we heard from Fred, they're making a big bet on uh, an online learning platform uh, to help them really scale and expand and and, and meet his very ambitious ambitious goals about reaching hundreds of thousands of, of students. And 
online learning in theory could address the accessibility problem. Fred says an all online education he doesn't believe is going to sort of meet that quality threshold and instead is going for a kind of blended learning approach, which is some online and then some in-person instruction. Um, do you agree with Fred on that approach? I think so. Uh, there are many institutions with a great deal of experience in uh, online education, certainly the Open University in the UK, uh, South Africa's UNISA uh, as a distance uh, learning institution. My sense would be that the online model in its entirety is likely to frustrate. And you and I both know that even a few days into social isolation and social distancing plays tricks on one's, uh, on one's intellect. You know, you really want to ask somebody a question and look into the whites of their eyes, you know. Uh, I, I mean, I joke, but I think these are really important points that one could trace back even to Shakespearean Macbeth uh, and the idea of, uh, I understand it like a man but I now need to feel it as a man, is, is, is a very good illustration of uh, the importance of learning in a socially situated uh, way. And this is a bigger idea than simply contact. This is a big idea because it calls for a sustained attempt at solving socially and collectively difficult problems. The idea that what people have learned is socially made and socially supported. And whilst I think there's great value in terms of access through technology, my sense, and maybe I'm just an old fuddy-duddy, is that there, there may be a degree of um, disappointment in, uh, in how people engage. You reminded me of a conversation I had with Walter Isaacson, who wrote a great book called The Innovators about the history of computer science innovation. And and I asked him, so what's the what's the secret? Tell me the secret of your book in, in one sentence. And he said, innovation is about getting people with different expertise and different worldviews into the same physical room to solve problems. And um, maybe we're all old fuddy-duddies, but it's going to be, this is a chance, I guess, to test that thesis um, now that we're all spread apart. David Johnson, thank you so much for taking time out of your social distancing to be with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I enjoyed our chat. My thanks to David Johnson and Fred Swanaker. My name is Peter Drobak, and you've been listening to Reimagine a podcast series about people who are inventing the future. Subscribe to Reimagine wherever you get your podcasts. Better still, leave a rating and tell a friend about Reimagine. You can learn more about this podcast and social entrepreneurship at reimaginepodcast.com. And finally, I'd love to hear from you. Tell me what you think about the show, what topics you'd like us to reimagine. You can find me on Twitter at Peter Drobak or email me at peter at reimaginepodcast.com. And thanks.